Well, well, as we open the the scriptures this morning, we're launching into a new series of studies on uh, a section of Matthew's biography and the life of Jesus that we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And and the place I want to begin as we launch into this today is the question, what does the reputation that we followers of Jesus have in our world? And how do people view us? What can we do about that? You see, there was a season in our history and in cultures like ours, in countries like ours, when social norms and values that people generally lived by were relatively close to that which was described in the Bible. There's never been uh, uh, an absolute or a total alignment, but there was a time when the church and its members were at least viewed honourably. That's not to suggest that Christians and churches haven't had their critics. Uh, While the values that we've espoused might well have been honoured, sometimes, quite often in fact, our reputation hasn't always been fantastic. Like the, uh, the famous little diary entry that uh, Robert Louis Stevenson famously recorded one day uh, about an event that to him was most unusual. He said, I have been to church today and am not depressed. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the famous poet of the 19th century, once wrote, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. I mean, the the, the reputation, the the caricature, if you will, uh, of Christians has often been equated with funlessness, boring, colorlessness. And yet, we who have chosen to become a follower of Jesus, we would attest to the fact that this is far and away the best decision that we have ever made in our life. Well, if it's any comfort to us, this is nothing new. The earliest Christians were sometimes the butt of of, of similar criticism as well. Living according to God's values often brought them into conflict with the popular culture of the day, and and led to serious suspicion. Uh, For instance, way back in the middle of the 4th century, Julian became the emperor of the Roman Empire. He was part of the uh, extended family of Emperor Constantine, who allegedly converted. Uh, There's questions about just the validity of that. Uh, But what Constantine did do was make... Christianity, the favoured religion of Rome. And uh, Julian was, I think from memory, something like a a great nephew of Constantine. And uh, he tried, when he became emperor, to turn the clock back and return Rome to paganism. Uh, He was unsuccessful in doing so. But, But this is a quote that he gave about how he looked at Christians. He said, have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted all, they brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines on them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. Anybody want to become a Christian line up here? 
I mean, it's charming, right? And perhaps it was for reasons like this that Jesus gave to his first followers some great advice on how we could live in a hostile world. Advice that would not only keep, help them survive and flourish, but also gradually influence the people they lived amongst and change them. Take, for instance, these words at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, starting at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, this passage that we refer to often as the Sermon on the Mount has been described over the years as the essence of Jesus' teaching about what God is like and how we're supposed to live uh, in connection with him. Uh, It it, uh, may not have been one single talk that Jesus gave all at one time, but rather a collection of teachings that he gave, and possibly on a number of occasions. For this record uh, also of the Sermon on the Plain uh, that you find in Luke's Gospel that has many similarities with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Um, but the, these words of Jesus have been described as the core of the Christian apple. If we grasp Nothing else about the teaching of Jesus apart from the Sermon on the Mount, we probably get the gist of what he was on about. And and in terms of the verses we've just read, when Jesus refers to his followers as salt and light, he was actually stating a profound compliment in terms of our status and the potential that we have to influence, influence the world that we live amongst. He was also giving us a profound challenge about our responsibility as agents of change. Now, I I don't know how you feel about yourself and your status uh, and how you perceive what you're capable of, but I I want to tell you today that you and I are far more than just an uh, identity number uh, or an insignificant cog in the big machine of life. We are... God's agents of change and hope in the midst of a broken world. So when when Jesus' original audience heard him refer, using these metaphors of salt and light, what were the mental pictures that would have come to the minds of his hearers? Well, Well, firstly, in the world of Jesus' day, salt was a commodity that was highly valued. The, uh, the Greek culture uh, regarded it as a divine substance. The uh, Romans had a little saying which uh, translates from the Latin, there is nothing more useful than sun and salt. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the, the word salary is actually derived from the Latin word salarium, which literally meant salt money. So when Jesus employs this metaphor of salt as a descriptor of what it means to be one of his followers, he was using a word picture 
that had very graphic meaning to the culture of his day. Ordinary people didn't tend to think of themselves with that level of significance. Uh, Salt was renowned for at least three properties. Firstly, purity. Uh, Perhaps the glistening whiteness uh, of salt gave it this connotation, but in the ancient world it was regarded as the purest of all things because it came from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. Uh, Because of its association with the idea of purity, salt was the most primitive of offerings that were actually made to pagan gods. In fact, even the Jews used to add salt to some of their sacrifices. So, to to Jesus' original audience, reference to his followers as salt of the earth, they would have understood him as talking, at least in part, about purity. We're purified, we're made clean by what God has done for us, but we're also called to a standard of purity in our conduct and our relationship. We are to be men and women of unmixed moral standards and integrity. We're to be pure and honest in what we stand for. We're to be credible examples of purity amidst a compromised and a polluted world. And so when you read on in the New Testament, this was certainly a theme that other Bible authors also picked up on. For instance, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says, Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are inappropriate for the Lord's people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Then a second property of salt is a preservative. Uh, Before the days of refrigeration that we're used to now, uh, salt was used to keep things from going bad or decaying. It was like an antiseptic that warded off infection or decay. Uh, Salt preserved food from bacterial corruption. And this would have been one of the connotations that Jesus had in mind when he spoke of us as the salt of the earth. We have a role to play in our society in protecting it from bacterial or moral and spiritual corruption. We are an antiseptic preservative preventing the spread of spiritual perversion. By our presence, by our participation in a community, we exercise a preserving influence. Now think about this, because might this mean that we speak up at work or at a social function when the idea is proposed that we do something that's dishonest or lured or immoral? Our our presence and our voice might just be a moral preservative that prevents truth decay or corruption. By contrast, staying silent, not finding our voice, might that mean we actually are complicit in that which is collectively evil? Then a third property of salt 
is that it added flavour and seasoning. And we'd be quite familiar with this. Certain foods without the additive of salt taste bland. However, with a pinch of salt, they taste pleasant and palatable. Salt adds flavour and body to food. Well, what salt is to food, we are to be within our community or our neighbourhood or our extended family or our workplace. Now, here's the thing. Sadly, that's not always the case. Because, because some Christians, it's kind of a, a misguided, I think, view of serious piety, we give an altogether different impression. Rather than bringing a positive flavor to a group of people, the, the image that we tend to reflect is more one of sourness than pleasant taste. Christians are perceived as killjoy, wet blankets, you know, the fun police. When Jesus said we're to be salt of the earth, he was describing the positive contribution that we bring to our community. We're, we're representatives of the kingdom of God here on earth. By our presence and participation, we, we model purity and integrity. By our, our presence and our participation, we preserve our society from the spread of moral corruption and perversion and decay. By our presence and participation in the world, we're actually supposed to bring flavour and joy and the spice of life to God's kingdom. So, so what does Jesus mean when he makes the statement that we read before about salt that loses its saltiness. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But, but some people have actually struggled with this particular statement because they would say, well, salt actually never loses its taste. Well, I, I can't be certain, but one explanation suggests that Jesus may have had in mind the ovens that food was cooked in uh, in his day, these were typically constructed outside the house building, maybe in a courtyard or adjacent to it, and they were built of stone uh, on a base of tiles, and in order to retain the heat uh, under the tiles, there was a thick bed of salt that was laid under the tiled floor. And after a certain length of time, uh, the salt base would perish, and, and the tiles would be taken up, and the Salt removed and thrown on the road outside the door of the oven. It had lost its power to heat the tiles and was now worthless. Well, whatever Jesus was alluding to, the point was clear. We're supposed to make a difference in our world. And if we fail to add flavour and preservative, we have little purpose or value. We lose our credibility. That is the second metaphor that Jesus described when he called us the salt of the, the light of the world. And once again, Jesus used a word picture that was rich in meaning and understanding for the people of his day. Uh, the, the Jews would speak, for instance, of the city of Jerusalem as a light to the Gentiles. Uh, it was a, a beacon of truth about God. Or a, a famous Jewish rabbi might be called a lamp of Israel. In the Hebrew mind of Jesus' day, light and truth were synonyms. 
Uh, Truth brings illumination. We talk about throwing light on a subject or illuminating the truth that might be hidden or guarded. And Jesus was suggesting this is something of our role as his followers. By our presence and participation in the world, we bring the light or illumination of truth. Perhaps more correctly, I guess we're reflectors or mirrors of the light rather than a light source ourselves. We illuminate the character of God and the difference that he makes in a person's life. Now, now one of the salient features about light even the, the tiniest little flicker is that it's all, it always dispels darkness. Light and dark, mutually exclusive. You cannot extinguish light by darkness. Darkness is always defeated by light. I mentioned before Robert Louis Stevenson. There's another delightful little story that he told where he recounts an experience when he was a young child in the home where he lived. In those days, of course, there wasn't electricity that lit up street lights. But as the story goes, Robert Louis Stevenson as a child was sitting in the window and watching a lamp lighter walk along the street with their big rod and, and uh, a flame, and they'd light the lamps on the lamppost, the lamplighters. And his nurse apparently came into the room and asked him what he was doing, uh, to which he said, I'm watching a man making holes in the darkness. Now, maybe that's not a bad description of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. By our presence, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, We're making holes in the spiritual darkness of this world. By our our presence or by the words that we speak or by our good deeds or by our our lifestyle and behavior, we are illuminating truth about Jesus. But but then Jesus further develops his analogy and he gave two specific examples. He, He talked about a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Villages or towns, wherever possible in those days, were were built on the crest or the top of a hill. And in the evenings when homes were lit up, travelers could see the location of a town for miles around. People moved in the direction of the lights. The lit up town gave a traveler bearing. Or the other example that he gave possibly needs a bit more explanation. He said, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, you put it on a lampstand so that it can illuminate the whole room. Now, what does that really mean? Well, in those days, of course, uh, uh, most, the most common kind of house light was, a, I guess, like a saucer-like uh, bowl with a pool of, of oil in it and a floating wick that was ignited that gave off light. Uh, and it sat on a lampstand, which was often a protruding log or, or, or stone from the side of the house. And, and, and the, the point he was making was that you put the lamp where it can actually impart the most illumination. Uh, those days, of course, no such thing as matches. And if a lamp went out, it wasn't an easy process to reignite it. So when people went out for the evening or if they went to bed, they would place over the lit lamp a, a basket-like bowl 
that would allow the lamp to burn lowly without extinguishing, but the house would be in darkness when they wanted it to be. And Jesus' point that he was making was that when you light a lamp, its purpose is to provide light. You don't light a lamp with the purpose of putting it under a bowl. You light a lamp because you want to see it. Light is by definition visible. So, having tried to grasp uh, Jesus' metaphors and what they might have meant to his original hearers, how do we understand the point of this for the 21st century? Where, where do these words challenge us today? Well, one application might be the fact that being a follower of Jesus is actually impossible to keep hidden. The, the flavour of our connection with God, the illumination of his truth, leaks out and affects people around us. So someone once said that uh, there, there can be no such thing as secret discipleship, for either the secrecy destroys the discipleship, or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. I mean, isn't it the case that a lot of people have wrongly assumed that to be Christian is merely a matter of belief or philosophy? I believe the right things. You're in. But actually, it's not enough to just believe in God. Or to accept that Jesus is the Son of God who came from heaven to earth to redeem us. You know what? The devil believes that is actually true. That doesn't make him a disciple of Jesus. No. When, when the light of God has touched the life of a person, it will inevitably show Light always overcomes darkness, for light has to be visible. It reminds me of the story of the, uh, the pompous minister, I may have told this before, who was filling in for a Sunday school teacher of 10-year-old boys. And he began his lesson with the words, with a question, Now tell me, boys, why do people say that I am a Christian? To which they in an intimidated fashion, sat there and said absolutely nothing. So he said it again. Oh, why, why do people call me a Christian? And still they said nothing. So he said it a third time. And finally one little boy put up his hand and said, perhaps it's because they don't know you? <laughs> <laughs> well, when Jesus is truly Lord of our lives, the impact of that fact on our character and our personality is inevitably visible to others. If it isn't, maybe we need to come back for another strike of the match. Another application might be the challenge to deliberately engage in the social structures of our society. I mean, salt that is stuck in a salt shaker isn't much help, nor is light stuck under a bowl. Or to employ a different analogy, which you might have difficulty getting out of your head once I've told it to you. Uh, it's been suggested that Christians are a little bit like manure. All in one big pile, they stink. But spread them over a field, and they do a lot of good and make things grow. But being a follower of Jesus does not take us out of society. It embeds us within it where we're able to bring a godly flavor. 
So, so we need more followers of Jesus engaging in areas of civic influence, whether that's at a national level or a local level or a neighbourhood level. Well, we need more followers of Jesus who serve on school boards of trustees, for instance, or sporting administration bodies, or neighbourhood watch groups. We, we need, I think, to honour and recognise the role that Christian teachers play in the education system for the incredibly wonderful opportunity that they have to be salt and light in shaping the minds of the next generation. Likewise, those who work in media, those Christians who might engage deliberately in the trade unions of their industry, or the, those who work in the health industry, or the legal system, or any, any number of other sectors in society. Another application might be that Jesus was saying that it might be a challenge to get to know our neighbours. There's a thought. Our colleagues at work. How well do we know them? Or maybe the people that we exercise with at the gym. I mean, here's the thing. The thing. If all we do is socialize and hang out with fellow followers of Jesus, then welcome to the last generation of the Christian church. Because most people who become Christians well, all attest to the fact that the thing that got them interested in Jesus was someone who was like salt and light about Jesus and introduced them slowly to him. And the sad reality is that so many Christians today only ever mix with other Christians. Another point of application might be doing random acts of kindness for a neighbor or a workmate or a relative who's in need. Is there someone in our streets, our neighbourhood, our workplace who's lost a loved one or is sick or someone in the family is sick? What would it cost us to make a meal for them or make them a cake or go and mow their lawns or wash their car? I mean, Jesus implied that light is shone or broadcast by doing good deeds. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And we're doing something practical to help a person in need is a great way to illuminate God's love and truth. Yeah, another application might be something as simple as being conscious of our demeanour. What kind of flavour or what coloured light do we display? Are we diffusers of joy or dispensers of relational caustic soda and sour vinegar? Do, do we portray an image of Christian faith that's warm, friendly and fun or something which appears more exclusive and boring and dull? Maybe we, we sprinkle salt or we display light by the warmth of a smile to a stranger as you walk on the road, get eye contact. Or an exchange like that with a shopkeeper. Salt spills from us when we handle a server in a restaurant kindly or when someone wants to change lanes in front of us on a busy road. 
Likewise, how we treat our employees or our bosses. Do we steal from our employer through lack of punctuality and diligence at work? Or are we known for being diligent and honest? What kind of language do our colleagues hear come out of our mouth or the jokes that we tell or laugh at? I mean, there are no shortage, numerous other ways that we could apply Jesus' advice about being sold. You'll be able to think of as many as I could, I'm sure. But let me finish with a challenging question to take away and ponder. You can have roast preacher on this one over lunch. An American friend once asked me a question about New Zealand. Uh, at the time, and he was talking about, he was asking the questions about the spiritual climate of New Zealand. At the time, we were both serving on a, uh, an international task force that was uh, redefining and designing an international Christian organization. We were meeting in Washington, D.C. at the time, and my friend didn't know much about this country, but he did know a lot about mission and evangelism. And he asked the question, he said, is New Zealand post-Christian or pre-Christian? Now, I, I, uh, I fumbled for an answer at the time, but I have thought a lot about that question ever since. And, and I've come to the conclusion that I think it is missiologically an incredibly relevant and pertinent question when it comes to describing our responsibility as salt and light. Now, probably the right answer is both. We're a mixture of post-Christian and pre-Christian. But the approach or the attitude that we have toward our society and our culture is altogether different by how we see it. In a post-Christian society, for instance, the attitude, the activity of a lot of Christians is all about inviting people to come back. We look at our increasingly unchristian society, we lament at how different it is today from what we once perceive it to be. We throw our hands up in horror at what we perceive to be the godless changes in our culture and we sometimes romanticize about what we think it was like a generation or so ago. Uh, people today, they might not currently be in church, but they used to be, and they would know how to behave if they came into church today. In, in a post-Christian society, the language of the church is often whinging at the government or shaking a lobbying fist about lapses in moral legislation, or how the state is not caring adequately for the marginalised. And the church assumes a posture of power and tends to see itself as a political prophet, provoking the moral conscience of a nation and its need to come back to God. We like to remind our culture about how far we have fallen from the ubiquitous old days. Words like renewal or revival or restoration. These are all, they all make sense in a post-Christian world as we pray and as we work to regain or claw back what we once had. 
In a pre-Christian world, the approach is somewhat different. Actually, it reminds me of what it was like being a missionary in a country like Bangladesh, where we Christians were a minuscule percentage of the overall population that was mainly Muslim. There was less talk about gaining back that which we never really had. There are no assumptions about former godly values. There's no rear vision mirror in a pre-Christian society, only a front windscreen. The starting point is very different. We get less angry and disappointed at the lack of righteous behavior that we see around about us because we realize that the people that we are living amongst don't know any better because they're yet to encounter the God of forgiveness and love and grace. Rather, we focus more energy on showing the better way to live. Less stick and grizzle and more role modeling and demonstration of the difference that God makes in our lives. And when something corrupt or moral or unhealthy pops up in our society, where we don't necessarily shy away from speaking into it as God's representatives, however, the premise, the soapbox on which we stand is based upon our character and good relationships that we have and sound reasoning and caring actions rather than an appeal to values that we assume everyone understands. I am profoundly challenged by how in the first 400 years after the time of Christ, the Roman Empire became more Christian than not by the middle of the 4th century, and all of it, all of it without power, and almost all of it, was led by people who were, many of them, slaves and powerless to force a change. They didn't march down the streets of Rome and banners and declare, come back to God. They simply rolled up their sleeves. They buried their own dead. They buried the dead of other people. They cared for those who were sick and sometimes caught their diseases. They prayed for the sick and sometimes they got well. They loved and honoured their bosses, their masters. And little by little, as light and salt exuded from them, there was a change. And people saw them and marvelled at what it was that made these people tick. The best way to do this is to live in such a way that our character and our behavior raises a positive question. And might that have been something behind why the Apostle Peter wrote as he did, and with this I'll finish, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He said, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let's pray together.